If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to episode 24 of All Crime No Cattle. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and we have an extra special episode to you because it's special in our hearts and souls. We're very excited about bringing this story to you. Just right off the top, we want to mention that if you usually skip over our theme song music, don't do it today. Go back and listen to it because we had a special little cover song made of our theme song by Shay himself, along with our friend Cody. Yeah, basically, I kind of figured out how our theme song worked musically, and I laid out the basics, and I handed it over to a good friend of mine who I've played in bands with, and he just took it from there and laid down some really good lead tracks and made it sound great. I, I think it sounds really good. Yes, I love it. And it was a metal version of our theme song. And it's very apropos because of the content of the episode today. That's right. We're going to be talking about the life, times, legacy, and eventual murder and assassination of one dimebag Daryl Abbott. A Texas legend because of the importance of dimebag Daryl to Texas music. He's basically a local legend around here. He's obviously a very important artist and somebody, I think, who has so many ties to Texas. And this is really a Texas story. Yeah, he really changed music single-handedly with his brother, Vinnie Paul Abbott, who, unfortunately, uh, this this tandem is now together in the skies, so to speak, because Vinnie Paul passed away this this past Friday. And we've been working on this case for months now, putting it together. It's been a big ordeal. But 
you know, Vinny's passing was not expected. Unfortunately, he died in his home in Las Vegas from suffering a massive heart attack, is what we've heard so far, at the age of 54. Yeah, and it's something that we did consider maybe waiting a while just to respect the family and to respect fans who are obviously in mourning over Vinny's death. But ultimately, we had a lot of advice from fellow podcasters, and they said, well, this is a tribute to Dimebag. This can also now be a tribute to Vinny. And that's how we're kind of approaching this issue, because obviously these two, their their stories are linked together, not only because they were bandmates and artists, but because they were brothers. And I think that that's a really touching story. Obviously, if you love Pantera, then you love both of the Abbott brothers. And I think that, you know, we're going to see that Dimebag's story is Vinnie Paul's story and vice mm-hmm. versa. And so this is definitely a tribute to both of these amazing, amazing musicians. Yeah. And, you know, the first half of the episode is really going to delve into how Pantera got started, their rise to fame. And then we're going to get into what led up to the events of December 8th, 2004, where unfortunately Dimebag has passed away and is no longer with us. Well, before we get into it, like you're saying, Dimebag, Vinnie Paul, Pantera, the whole equation is such a big thing for North Texas, the metal community, music as a whole. Dimebag and Vinnie Paul are two of the biggest musicians to come out of the North Texas area since Stevie Ray Vaughan himself, who is a legend of rock music. I know I used to drive all the way out to West Fort Worth and work a terrible job in college. I had a terrible car that had no AC. I would sweat my whole body off. I'd be taking clothes off as I was leaving my bank job. And the whole way, I was always listening to my favorite band, Pantera. And it's a band that I emulated the level of professionalism and just find the tone and the passion of Pantera. So before I get into it, let's let's talk about a few of the sources that I found and I dug up for this episode. I think these are going to be really important to talking about Dimebag's story because this is a case that's been covered several times, but we're going to attempt to get into the nuts and bolts of this case and explain why it happened, what happened, and really get down to the heart of it. Because I know when I was thinking about doing this case and you recommended it to me because I'm such a big Pantera fan, I wanted to answer the questions I've always had, which is why did this happen? What happened? And are the rumors that are circulating in the music world that we heard about a lot when this case went down, are those true? So here's some of my sources. We use the Rolling Stone article behind the murder of Dimebag Daryl from December 30th of 2004. We used a CBS News article, Mom of the Concert Killer from 2004. The Dallas Observer article, Friends Remembering the Legacy of North Texas rock star Vinnie Paul Abbott. The Blabbermouth article called Philip Onsomo and his special smear campaign. The Behind the Music documentary from VH1, the remastered version. And the book, A Vulgar Display of Power, Courage and Carnage at the Alarosa Villa by Chris Arnold and James Niggermeyer from 2007. This particular book is a very important book in the legacy of Pantera. And the author, Chris Arnold, really had the same questions I did that we just talked about. It, it's kind of like the case that you just covered, Aaron, where there was a lot of coverage going on in the beginning. There was a lot of blanket articles that didn't really get to the heart of the matter. This book that was put out in 2007, which you can get on Amazon for around $13, but you can also acquire from Kindle Unlimited on a 30-day trial 
which is what I did. Super handy. It's out of print. It's an amazing book. And it's all about the victims, the other victims that are involved, because we're going to talk about other people besides Dimebag Daryl. And it focuses really on the attacker, the shooter in this case. I think it's a must read if you want to know what happened in this case. And I can't even start to get into the depth of this book, but it's amazing. You should totally go and get it and read it. It's awesome. Also, if you do end up purchasing this book or borrowing it on the Kindle Unlimited subscription, any proceeds that are earned from this book go directly to the family of one of the victims into a scholarship program for one of the surviving children, which is amazing. The last source that I used was The Revenge of Crazy Nate by Chris Norris that was published in Blender. He's a author from Rolling Stone and other music magazines, and that was in 2009. With all that out of the way, why don't you pour yourself a black tooth grin, sit down, and throw up the horns, because we're going to talk about Dimebag Daryl and Pantera. In the words of Dime himself, get yourself a pull. Yeah, if you don't know, a black tooth grin is Dime's favorite whiskey, which was Crown Royal with a splash of Coke. Gross. Not my drink of choice, but... <laughs> well, in honor of Dime, I am drinking whiskey and Coke tonight. Yeah, so. I had a couple of martinis, so I can't say anything. Daryl Lance Abbott, also known as Diamond Daryl, and by everybody else probably knows him as Dimebag Daryl. He was born August 20th of 1966 in Arlington, Texas. Dimebag was an American musician, a guitarist, a songwriter, and he was responsible for starting one of the largest legendary genre-changing metal bands in history, Pantera. This was a band that he formed and started with his brother Vinnie Paul Abbott. They would later go on to co-found the band Damage Plan. Dimebag was the son of Carolyn and Jerry Abbott. Jerry was a somewhat successful country musician and producer. And he loved fostering the love of music in his kids. And Vinnie Paul took really quickly to drumming and the drum kit and was a natural. And his second son, Daryl, was really interested in picking up a guitar. And like many kids, Daryl was infatuated in 1977 with the band Kiss. Yes, he was a member of the Kiss Army, Aaron. Which is surprising, because when I think of Pantera, I do not think of Kiss. Yeah, me either. And I'm not a big Kiss fan whatsoever, but you're going to see through this evolution of Dimebag's guitar playing and, and his imagination of rock stars and everything that this is going to be a part of it. The one thing Daryl loved, besides the infamous Kiss, was theatrics, glamour, fantasy. It's what was hot at the time, right? His favorite member of KISS was Ace Fraley, the lead guitar player. He loved when the spotlight would come down and Ace Fraley would step up and take control of the stage and kind of hold court over the crowd. That's what Dimebag wanted to be. His father saw this in, in Daryl. He saw that he was playing around with some of his mom's makeup, trying to put on the KISS face paint. And he went ahead, got him his first guitar, and Daryl took to it like a fish to water. He practiced on his guitar night and day. And his brother, Vinnie Paul, who was already accomplished on the drums, would bring in Daryl and they'd work on cover songs together, you know, kind of work things out. And it was a chance for Vinnie to, to master something he was working on on the drums and Daryl to pick up a basic guitar part. Daryl and Vinnie, they grew up tighter than brothers. And it, it mainly has to do with their cooperation and a musical journey together. 
they were best friends, they were brothers, but they were more than that. They were a tight musical machine. And this was honed over years and years of practice together, over and over and over, playing the same cover songs, listening to the same bands, sharing albums, and to that, Vinny talks about their formative years in the VH1 Behind the Music documentary as, quote, We never had competition with each other. Music was a unifying factor. We practiced over and over and over till our fingers bled and we had nowhere else to sweat from. We went 100% all the time. We did it together. Nothing less was acceptable. Besides his guitar playing and his love of music, Daryl had another serious focus that we need to talk about that many people don't know about or care to talk about. And that was that he met his lifelong girlfriend, Rita Haney, around the third grade. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, they they were childhood sweethearts. They were best friends. They were kindred spirits. Their mutual love of glam metal and, of course, the rock band Kiss led them to attending their first concert together. Rita even came over early before the concert and helped him dress up in a handmade outfit and painted his face like Ace Fraley, his superstar icon that he loved. Wait, was their first concert together a Kiss concert? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is our first picture in our shared documents over there. So you can you can actually check out Daryl and his face paint and his costume. Oh, you guys. We will definitely post these pictures. I'm so excited because Shay's told me about these and I have not been able to look at them yet. Oh, my God, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow so that's Dimebag uh, and how old is he here I think he's around like 12 or 11 wow yeah. he looks like a superhero <laughs> well that's what Kiss looked like you know yeah I guess they, they were did. rock and roll superheroes is really what they were alright so him and Rita went to a Kiss concert when they were like 13 years old that's right that is adorable I never knew that well this particular night would blossom into their eventual love of the band Kiss and also each other, because Rita would become his lifelong girlfriend. No matter what, through thick and thin, Rita and Dime, they were soulmates. They met and grew up on the same street, and they would stay together for the next 30 years. Rita said recently, reflecting back on her life with Daryl, quote, Everyone loved Dime. He wanted to be everyone's best friend, and he attracted people to him. He just had a way about him that made everyone instantly love him. Well, everyone wanted what I called dime time and he would give it to almost anyone fans friends family roadies it didn't matter i was always there with him every step of the way and even though he tossed out so much dime time to everybody else and there were so many bad times i still got the most dime time no matter what and those are the times that i will always cherish well by the age of 14 daryl was competing in guitar competitions he was taking his skill to a new level and these were competitions that were going on across the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You're going to see pictures of Dimebag competing in guitar <gasps> competitions. Oh my god, are you kidding me? Isn't that, is that not like what your hair looks like when you blow dry it? Except for more froed? Shay, guys, let's talk about the fact that, okay, the, no, I don't look quite like this, but I look like late, I have later uh, Dimebag Daryl's hair. 100% yeah. long brown, curly, afro. That's what I got going for me. I'm pretty sure that's why Shay married me. Or at least that's why you <laughs> fell in love with me, for sure. I do You're love like, curly this hair. This girl looks like Dombag Daryl. 
that the, these are amazing. I've, bet, I've never, and I'm really excited to hear this part of his yeah. story. Cause you've kind of hinted at this glam metal start to dime bag. And I yeah. guess, I, I guess also Vinnie Paul, which is shocking to me. I never would have thought yeah. that. Yeah. He was hardcore even back then, man. He went all the way. 100%. Even, in, even though it was the glam era, he was all <laughs> about it. These guitar competitions that he entered, he won every single one wow and what were the ages of contestants he started doing this when he was 14 and it was for anyone who was from 14 to 25 wow so we're talking about full-blown adult guitar players competing against dimebag daryl against a child yeah so daryl won so many of these competitions that one of the organizers of this circuit in north texas asked him to no longer attend the competitions so that someone else could win (laughs) wow yeah and they even made him a judge after that no way so real adults were having to perform and daryl would be part of the judging panel wow to judge them yeah that is incredible yeah so from a very early age you begin to see that daryl was on his way to becoming a guitar virtuoso yeah absolutely well meanwhile his older brother Vinny, a little bit older he's more interested in forming a band little bit more professional about it he was already on his way to becoming one of the greatest drummers of all time that anyone had ever heard of in rock or metal well vinnie paul would later talk about how obsessed daryl was about playing the guitar and starting a band he told daryl that like hey at some point you're pretty good maybe we could play in a band together and daryl got really obsessed he lost his mind he bought a recording device and to that vinnie said quote Dime had a guitar in the bathroom, and I went in there one time, and I saw his guitar in his recorder, and I asked him, what's up with this thing, man? Like, why do you have this in the bathroom? And he told me, oh, man, that's where I write my greatest shit. And he just laughed. (laughs) Uh, Oh, (laughs) Daryl. Yeah. That's what everybody loved about him. He was a blue-collared, salt-of-the-earth kind of dude who was just amazing at the guitar. Well, around this time, Daryl started going by the name Diamond Daryl, because, again, inspired by his favorite... Yeah, this is this glam metal thing, huh? Exactly. Inspired by his favorite band, Kiss, in the glam rock era, he and Vinny, they started their first band together, and of course, it was a glam band, Aaron. I'm so excited to hear about this. Yes, and they formed this band in 1981 while they were all still in their mid-teens. Vinny was, you know, getting a little older, but it was a big-haired, flashy, makeup-clad, glam rock band. And of course, they were called Pantera. No way! They they haven't had the same name? Dude, they've been around since 1981. And a lot of people don't know that about Pantera. And and where did they get the name Pantera? Well, Vinny Paul had a conversation with a friend, and his friend was from Mexico and had some Latin American influence and language. And he, he told him that Pantera meant Panther. And it was really cool name that Vinny Paul immediately was like, man, that's cool. That's romantic. It's exotic. Yeah. And it's very even Fort Worth because of Panther city. That's what Fort Worth's nickname is. Yeah, exactly. Back when it was an old fort, there used to be a lot of Panthers here. Okay. So Pantera equals Panther. I never knew that. I'm learning so much. I'm so excited about this. Well, they joined forces with a couple of other local friends who were in other glam bands. And it was Rex Brown on bass, who was a known awesome bass player from North Texas, 
and Terry Glaze, who was known for his guitar abilities, for rhythm, and also his operatic glam vocals. Well, they became, quote, and this is from a Fort Worth Weekly music article when they started talking about Pantera for the first time. They were called, quote, the kings of the spandex circuit of North Texas. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, they played roller rinks, huge house parties, and they even headlined local bars before they were old enough to drink. So they get the big X big on X your on hand. Your hand. Yeah. yeah. Well, Vinnie Paul would say of the early years playing with his brother, Daryl, quote, yeah, we were rock stars of the little DFW universe that we were at the center of. We used to wear spandex and weird outfits, face paint. You know, that was when we first started. But at some point, after seeing bands like Metallica and Megadeth coming up, we said, let's just be us and let the music speak for itself. And that's when they took a whole shift in another direction. And it's funny because one of the guys I work with used to go see Pantera. Well, he's in his 50s now. But he used to go see Pantera at an old place called Joe's Garage when they were full-blown glam rock. Wow. And he loved the early years. And he had their albums and stuff. You know, I mean, they were a local staple from 1981 all the way up to the early 90s. That's what kind of legacy the DFW area has with this band. That's crazy. I would kill to hear some of this glam metal early Pantera. I really want to hear it. Like right now, I want to stop recording and, <laughs> and find it on the internet. Well, after we're done here, we'll go and we'll check some out. I cannot wait. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I think of Pantera, I think of the later years of Pantera. I think of dirty, gritty, angry, yeah. violent. The loudest, hardest thing you can imagine. Masculine. You know, all of yeah. those things. You do not think of spandex and, and big hair. Well, that's the hard shift that we're about to talk about. Well, as the rock and metal genres begin to shift gears in the mid-80s, Pantera decided it was time to shed the glam and do something different. Like we said, they let go of the face paint, the spandex, Vinny and Daryl. They started pushing the tone of the band to a harder, heavier, faster, more progressive sound. The difficulty level of the music got higher and higher and higher. They started wearing blue jeans, t-shirts, Terry Glaze... On the other hand, their lead singer was pushing the band towards glam music. And he didn't really fit with what the band was trying to do. And he ended up leaving in 1986. Oh, boy. Big mistake, Terry. <laughs> well, actually, Terry has become a really good professional musician. He played in a bunch of other really popular glam oh, no and prog rock bands. Yeah, oh, interesting. Through, yeah. Okay, and so he, he did his own thing. That's well, great for him. And him and Rex are two of the only surviving members of the original Pantera lineup now. Oh, bummer. The vacuum of Terry Glaze left the position open for a young, talented New Orleans native who grew up on the dirty streets of the French Quarter. I'm talking about Phil Anselmo. Yep, Phil Anselmo. Yeah, he comes with a lot of baggage. He comes with a lot of background. Real? A lot of it's not good. No. Real good looking guy. Uh, amazing front man. Great vocals. Also, douchebag. Completely crazy person. Yeah. Well, the thing that worked was Phil's gritty, punkish, thrasher, I don't give an S style that instantly clicked with what Rex and the Abbott brothers were trying to pull off with the new phase of Pantera. By 1989, Pantera was the most hardcore, destructive, loud, and talented metal band in North Texas. They were rewarded with their first record contract from A&R Atco Records, and it happened when a talent scout 
sign them on the spot after watching one of their infamous huge birthday bash parties in North Arlington. And this happened not far from where we used to live off of Harwood. It was it was like a block away off of Harwood Street where we used to live. It was in a big park and this talent agent showed up and this is what he had to say. Quote, it was absolutely chaotic, electrifying, demonic, and the embodiment of musical annihilation. They had complete control of everyone there. Basically, you had to be an idiot not to think they were amazing. We had to sign them immediately. Even if you don't like metal music, you have to give props to their incredible talent. This is at a time where the musical industry, especially I guess in the United States, is really kind of undergoing a lot of changes. So we have the influx of grunge and kind Alt of rock, punk. Yeah, I mean, all those yeah. things start so coming is, in. With yeah, exactly. Ska. Yeah, this is the perfect time of of things that are different, of really expanding rock music as a genre and getting all of these subgenres and yeah. sub subgenres going. And so this was the perfect time where they they really had like this little niche that they could fill I'm glad with you... this incredibly heavy sound. Exactly. And I'm glad you bring that up because we're going to talk about that niche that they filled here in just a second. Well, Pantera on their new record contract, they roared into this tiny little studio in Pantigo, Texas to record and never looked back. In 1990, their 1990 major label debut was in fact one of the albums that everyone knows them for, Cowboys from Hell. Yeah, baby! Yeah, well, it changed the music genre forever when it came out. Because this was a zero for, to hero record, where like nobody knew who Pantera was, Cowboys from Hell dropped, and it changed the genre of rock and roll music until today. Well, this whole album was deemed as a southern style of metal music. It would come to be known as groove metal. Dimebag's guitar work and Vinnie Paul's unique style of drumming were the heart of the sound. Mixed with, you know, Rex Brown's ever-present, leading, melodic bass and Phil Anselmo's uh, demonic, screeching, falsetto vocals that just felt like they were coming from the bowels of hell. This is what made up their holistic sound. And this style was sought after and emulated by bands ever since the Cowboy From Hell album dropped. Hell. Yeah, definitely. Dude, I was in bands during the time in like the mid to late 90s, and we were trying to copy Pantera's sound. Like, everybody was. I mean, how many metal shows did you go to where you were like, oh, they're clearly trying to be Pantera? All of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was so ever-present in this era. Between Pantera and Metallica, I mean, I mean, yeah, that's what every metal band, especially during that time, and I think even today, that's what everybody wants to sound like. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about a sound that was basically comprised of heavy, complex, progressive guitar playing but at its root, it had a slow pace, kind of like how I talk because I'm from the South and I have a slow cadence of talk, but it also has a hook in it. It has this groove and that's what makes up groove metal. It's a slower tempo, but it has this sing-songy kind of melody of Dimebag's screaming wails going on in the background. Does that make sense? Listen. Guys, there's like a thousand different subgenres that we can get into. I didn't know that they were classified as something called groove metal. I'm not even sure I knew about that. If you want to learn more about metal music and metal subgenres, there is a really 
interesting documentary called The Headbanger's Journey. And it was actually created by an anthropologist. Shay and I were both mm-hmm. anthropology majors in school. Created by an anthropologist who basically did this entire kinship chart, which related all of these different metal bands to each other and classified them in their different subgenres and everything. And it's fascinating if you're oh, inter- really if you're interested in metal or just rock in general. Really cool stuff. I had no idea they would be classified as a uh, groove metal. Well, in I, fact, I when you search, if you just Google groove metal and you go to the Wikipedia about groove metal, uh-huh. the first thing that comes up is the template of Cowboys from Hell and the starting blueprint that evolved into everything. So literally their first album, Out of the Gate, inspired an entire genre of music. And, and basically what groove metal is, is it's it's rooted in something that came before it, which is Black Sabbath, another mm-hmm. favorite band of ours, slow, trudging, complicated, progressive. But I think it's a good point, and it shows the roots of the band based in Black Sabbath and a progressive style, but add more distortion, add more screaming, add more aggression, you know, anger. That's what became Pantera in this movement of extreme metal and groove metal in the late 90s. Okay. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Well, like we're talking about, this unique sound and the band landed a major tour spot with Suicidal Tendencies and Exodus as an opening act. Now, Pantera, they were dark horses on this tour. Pretty much nobodies. Nobody knew who they were, but their destructive style, their anger, their aggression, it started winning over audiences across the nation and even worldwide when their tour was expanded to an international tour. In fact, Exodus and Suicidal Tendencies were known to hate going on after Pantera because of the way that they would rile up audiences and start giant mosh pits, uh, death walls, all those kinds of things. If you went to a Pantera show in the early 90s, you probably came home with a broken face. Phil Anselmo would say of this particular tour, it was the Killer Be Killed tour. We were the lowest people on the totem pole, and we wanted to go out and we wanted to terrify fans. Make them feel like the earth was going to open up and swallow them whole. Fans reacted across the country and internationally 
and the album quickly went gold and later platinum. This was one of the fastest zero to hero stories of any metal band ever in the history of the genre. The album was ranked number 11 in the 2006 issue of Guitar World Magazine's list of the greatest 100 guitar albums of all time. And as we said, a lot of people consider this album as the founding of an entire genre of metal music. Over the next 10 years, Pantera would put out four more albums. Vulgar Display of Power, Far Beyond Driven, Great Southern Trend Kill, and Reinventing the Steel. Almost each album was somewhat heavier and louder than the last, propelling them to domination in the heavy metal genre for over a decade. They were the heaviest, loudest thing that anybody had ever seen. Exactly, yeah. You know, and they dug in. Like, that was the thing. It was like every album wasn't heavy enough. Each album they went in to record, like even Vulgar Display of Power, which is their second album, it hit the Billboard 200 charts and stayed in the top 10 for months and months and months, and it blew producers and executives away. So in 1999, friends and players on the Dallas Stars hockey team asked Vinnie Paul and Dimebag at a golfing event if they would write a fight song for the team because they were about yeah. to go into the playoffs. Well, Vinnie and Dime... And hey, you guys know what happened in no. 1999? We'll talk about it in a second. So <laughs> Vinnie and Dime, they went home. They, they were excited that the Dallas Stars were in the playoffs, headed for the Stanley Cup Finals, and they ran home, they cut a track, and they called it, quote, Puck Off. Yeah, Dallas Stars Puck Off! Yeah, well, they cut the track, they FedExed it to Craig Ludwig, one of the defensemen of the 1999 Dallas Stars. Craig got this package, he threw it in the boombox, and played it in the middle of one of the really important games in the playoffs, and it, it rallied the Stars, and they won the game. And ever since, that song has at least been played at every end of every period. And recently, they play it after every goal, and it's become the new fight song of the Dallas Stars. And that's why the Dallas Stars have the best fight song in the entire NHL. Yep. Now, fight anybody who says otherwise. Yep, and Vinnie Paul and Dime will live on forever and ever with the Dallas Stars. That is absolutely right. It's after Vinnie Paul's death recently... The Dallas Stars had a big uh, thing on their website and really talked about Vinnie Paul because Pantera, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Pantera were very good friends of the Dallas Stars. They were fans. They were friends. They loved the Dallas Stars. They went to games. In fact, one of the games that we went to, we saw Vinnie Paul there yep. and we said hello to him and he gave Shay a handshake. Yeah, I met him. And Shay was like, I was lucky Ooh. enough. I was starstruck, man. <laughs> it was one of my rock heroes, man. It was pretty cool. It yeah. was amazing, dude. He, they're, oh, man, they're just they're great down to earth people. Another story about the Dallas Stars is involving Lord Stanley's Cup. And this is the trophy you win when you win the NHL Stanley Cup finals. And Which we did, guys. In 1999. Might have been a long time ago, but you know what? It happened. Thank you. Well, infamously. Goodbye. Infamously, once we won it. There was a big celebration party at Vinnie Paul's house. Yeah. Dimebag, the rest of the band of Pantera was there. They were all drinking, having a good time. Until Guy Carboneau, one of the players for the Dallas Stars, he decided it'd be a great idea to go get the Stanley Cup away from the handler with the white gloves and the suit and take it upstairs to Vinnie Paul's balcony that overlooked the pool. And he attempted to throw Lord Stanley's Cup from the balcony into the pool 
Well, everybody was agging him on to throw it, but once he released it, it didn't quite have the trajectory to make it, and it clanked off the side of the pool, dented Lord Stanley's cup, and kind of sank to the bottom. That's kind of a story that lives in infamy and sports legendum. And you can look it up on YouTube. I don't know if legendum is a word, but we're going to use it. But you get what we're saying. How important Pantera was for the local DFW community, the Dallas Stars fans, yeah. everybody else. Let's make it clear. That was Guy Carbono's fault. Pantera didn't have anything to do with it. It just happened to happen at Vinnie Paul's house. <laughs> I'm sure they were probably a part of the crowd that was egging them all. Yeah. It seemed like the band Pantera could do no wrong in the 90s. Grammy nominations, platinum records, world tours, Billboard Top 100 records, as well as singles, as well as denting Lord Stanley's cup. But by 2002, there were ominous signs that there were serious problems within the band. Phil Anselmo suffered a really terrible heroin overdose in 1996 and had since been struggling with trying to stay clean. And on top of that, he was mixing prescription pain medications for his back problems that he had had for years of headbanging with alcohol to combat his chronic back issues. He went and saw some doctors. This required surgery, is what the doctors told him. But they told him he'd have to take like a year off and have a surgery. Well, that's not something Phil was interested in hearing. So he kind of like played it off for a while. But by 2002, it had really come to a head. He had overdosed a couple of times. One of them, he pretty much died for three minutes. And he was woken up with an adrenaline shot, and the nurse told him, like, you've been dead for three minutes. Welcome back to life. You OD'd on heroin. And you can see a real division between Phil and the rest of the band, where Phil is into more hardcore drugs and pills, and the rest of the band, it's it's just kind of like drinking, partying, and the mystique. Because... You know, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag, they they weren't into hard drugs. Like, they drank a lot. They drank like fish. And they were known for their drinking ability and partying. But when it came to hard drugs, that really affected your wherewithal and your headspace. And that's not something Dime and Vinnie were into. Dime and Vinnie, they had plans to record another album in 2002. And they had just finished, like, an international long tour. And they, they had their last show in Japan in 2002. And Pantera, they were planning on taking like a much needed break and refocus. They wanted to let Phil have some time off, you know, give him a chance to get his stuff together, go back to New Orleans. And Phil was on board. He was like, you know what? I'm just going to take some time, go back home. Well, did some icy hot in my back. Yeah. Well, lay down. Little did they know that that was the last time Pantera would ever play together. This would become a dark period of uncertainty with Pantera especially with Phil, who was back in New Orleans, and he was under this guise of recuperation and receiving treatment for his back. But months later, he and the bass player Rex Brown would release a new album under a new name, Phil's side project, called Down. In fact, in the next two years, Phil would put out three albums with the band Down and Superjoint Ritual and would tour with both bands. So you can see a big schism starting to form with the band, especially as the Abbott brothers were left in hiatus waiting for Phil to figure out what he was doing so that Pantera could reunite and continue their world domination. Well, communication between Dime and Phil, it continued to break down. 
It left arguably two of the most talented musicians in the metal genre out of work, being Dime and Vinny. Vocal jabs at each other started to come out in the media. Vinny and Dime would do an interview with a certain magazine or VH1, MTV, whatever, and they'd comment on the band's future and Phil. And then Phil would watch it and he would respond in another magazine or another interview and he would fire back with heinous, aggressive assaults towards the brothers. Well, finally, the Abbott brothers, they had had enough. They gave up waiting. In late 2003, they started a new band called Damage Plan. They had a new debut album that released in early 2004. It was called A New Found Power. The band was completed with the addition of DFW local musician and former Halford guitarist from Rob Halford's spinoff solo project, Pat Lockman. He threw down the guitar and said, you know what? I've always wanted to do vocals. You guys need a vocalist. I'm in. They also got LA native Robert Kakaha, Bob Zilla, on bass. Both the band and fans were excited for the new project. The debut album, Newfound Power, sold 44,676 copies in its first week. It hit number 38 on the Billboard 200. Damage Plan set out to promote their new album on Headbangers Ball Tour, the second edition, hitting some small venues as headliners along the way. You know how bands do, where like you're on a major tour, but you'll hit some side shows from time to time, you know? Yeah, that's kind of basically what they were doing in early 2004. On April 4th, 2004, Damage Plan was headlining one of these smaller shows at a club called Bogarts in Cincinnati, Ohio. A huge man named Nathan Gale jumped up on stage and began screaming at Dimebag. But due to the loud music, no one could make out what exactly he was saying. Three security men jumped up on the towering man, and Gale twisted and grappled with them to escape. Gale grabbed hold of a railing attached to a lighting rig and held on to it as security guards pummeled him into submission. The lighting rig eventually came down, and Gale relented. The security guards, they picked him up and started dragging him outside. But without interruption, the show continued on. As Gale was dragged from the stage, Pat Lockman shouted into the microphone, Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to introduce you to the fifth member of Damage Plan. He then said in disbelief, Who the fuck was that guy? And the crowd roared. While outside, the security team continued to wail on Gale, and the police were called to the scene. Gale was never charged with any crime, as far as the venue's concerned, or the band, or the lighting company who owned the damaged equipment that he pulled down. In fact, Gale was simply just banned from the club of Bogarts. Now keep this in mind as we get into our next section. Nathan Gale was born September 11th, 1979 in Lansing, Illinois, just south of Chicago. He was the youngest of three children by Mary Clark and Gerald Gale. The couple was already divorced earlier that year when Nathan was born, and Gerald didn't spend much time or show much affection towards Nathan. In comparison, his mother Mary, she tended to dote on the boy, spoil him. Shortly after Nathan was born, she moved the family to Columbus, Ohio. She wanted to get away from Gerald. Nathan, from the start, he was a troubled youth. He was constantly in trouble. He received several disciplinary actions in elementary through high school, And he even got caught shoplifting and and actually got an offense where he was kicked out of school for months. Much of this was written off as a kid 
who was the son of divorced parents who simply was just acting out. During his 10th grade year, Mary went through her second divorce, and she actually relocated once more to Marysville, Ohio, northwest of Columbus. There, she put uh, Nathan Gale into a vocational school called the Ohio High Point Career Center, hoping that it would suit him better than traditional high school. In 1997, Nathan seemed to be getting along better. He had made some friends, and by this time, he was closer to the age of 18, and he was able to complete his training as an electrician. One of his closest friends during this time was Ryan Hughes. He welcomed Nathan into the group of buddies, and they spent their free nights drinking, doing drugs, playing loud music in the garage, listening to their favorite band. Pantera. Nailed it. One of these nights at the house, Gail announced that he wanted to try cocaine because somebody had some, right? Well, he went off, he did a couple of lines, Ryan did some with him, and he came back different. He was just a hyper guy in general, and Ryan had this to say. You know, Nathan was off kilter from the get-go, but from what I recall, he was sitting in a chair and he was just rocking. Like, I mean... For a long, long time, the entire night, he was just rocking back and forth, like, really fast. And I realized later, this is probably how, like, crazy people move, unquote. A few weeks later, Nathan asked his friends if it would be cool if he tried to sing, like, with their garage band. Well, he spent a bunch of time, a lot of effort, like, writing some lyrics down. And when it came time to get up to the mic and just sing, he couldn't do it. It, like, infuriated him. Ryan remembered, quote, And we'd be jamming, and Nate would try to start singing, and he'd be right about to scream, and he'd be red in the face, like veins popping in his neck and in his face. He was totally contorted in rage, his lyric sheet up in his face, and he'd never say a word. He just couldn't sing. He never was able to do it. He tried over and over and over, and he just couldn't do it, and it was just weird. So was it like stage fright or? I think you're going to see there's something else going on. You know, it's he has the will and he has the want, but there's something underlying that that he's dealing with, especially as he get, becomes attached to the band Pantera and the metal genre as a whole, really. At some point, Ryan Hughes, he gave Nathan Gale his copy of Vulgar Display of Power, his current favorite album of choice. Well, Gail began playing it constantly. In fact, quote, he listened to the tape for two years straight. Every day, all day, every time I saw him, that's all he listened to and wanted to talk about. Ooh, that's a little excessive. It's extremely excessive. And obsessive. He began writing in journals at this point. Long streams of consciousness. These are strange, weird entries complaining of inabilities to hear his own thoughts and issues with society, and also the band Pantera. Here's an example of some of his poetry slash lyrics from one of his journals. So I've, I've sent you a copy of these journal entries, and Aaron's going to read these for us. So go ahead, Aaron. Voices in my head ringing in day and night. I can't stop the mind tracks. Shadows cast white flashes through my head. No accepting from the messages within. I can't stop the mind tracks, bruises in my mind that never go away. Hit me harder, I want to stay. Quit switching steps from a three-diamond air trooper. Do you think it's wrong to be so headstrong? Bruises in my mind that will never go away. Hit me harder, I won't stay. 
sounds a little bit like schizophrenia or something. I mean, I don't. Nathan Gale started using harder drugs at this point. We're talking about stuff like LSD, laughing gas, mushrooms, and more cocaine. Well, yeah. And if we're going down the road of this person possibly having an underlying mental illness, then what do a lot of people do in those situations? Is They try to self-medicate and they do that through drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And in this case, it just sent him on a further decline deeper Yeah, it's and not going to help yeah. for sure. Well, over the next few years, most of his close friends, they did what everybody else does. They move on with their lives. They get jobs. They start families. You know, they grow up. Meanwhile, Nathan Gale, he couldn't hold down a number of different jobs. I'm talking about like dozens and dozens of jobs, okay? Each one he eventually would get fired from or quit. Well, his mother, Mary, at one point, she got fed up with his behavior and she just kicked him out of the house. The result was Nathan Gale becoming a homeless person who lived in parks and roamed the streets, asking for loose change, doing drugs in the park, nefarious activities, as well as keeping his Walkman always plugged in and charged with vulgar display of power on repeat. He was still listening to the same album. In 2000, he made amends with his mother and he moved back into the home. He started to clean himself up. He was clean shaven. Uh, he actually started to work again. He was able to hold down a job for a couple of months at a time. A year later, on his 22nd birthday, you know what happened there? Nathan Gale woke up. He went into the living room and he turned on the TV just minutes before United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. He was consumed by the news coverage. Obviously, like we all were over the next couple of months, but Nathan Gale would confide in some of his friends and coworkers that he knew who was responsible. He was convinced it was Marilyn Manson. What? Yeah, he thought in his mind that Marilyn Manson had somehow brainwashed Al-Qaeda and convinced them to fly these planes into the towers and the Pentagon and the one that crashed in Pennsylvania because of their hidden messages in their music. Sound far-fetched? Because everybody else who knew him thought, you know what? This sounds like Crazy Nate talk. Which was actually his nickname amongst his friends was Crazy Nate. And he would do things like this. He would find hidden messages within album covers. You know, you get the little album and you open the album up, you get the little album booklet. He would find crazy codes and weird little nuances within the language and break it down and show you like, oh, well, this means that Pantera's going to come and play our high school prom next week or, you know, your birthday party. And of course, they wouldn't show up and he would look like an idiot. Well, that was Crazy Nate talk, just like Marilyn Manson convincing Al-Qaeda to run into the World Trade Center. In January of 2002, though, this all gets a lot more serious because Nathan Gale applied to the U.S. Marine Corps and he was accepted. Uh-oh. So he basically falsified his application and slipped through the background check of the 500,000 applicant backlog that was going on during the time because everybody was gearing up to go into this new war that we were doing against Al-Qaeda and Iraq. How he falsified his application was interesting, though, because he lied when, have you ever been convicted of a minor offense? And he said no, which he, we know that he had been convicted of shoplifting and he'd been tried in a jury amongst his peers. And he also said, no, he did not take narcotics or any other 
hard illegal drug substance. That is not true. We know all the drugs that he has taken. There's also like a generic question about, you know, your mental health and do you feel competent? And he answered yes. And we'll find out later that he is not mentally competent. Once Nathan Gale was in the military, his focus was mainly on automobile maintenance due to his degree. Instead of the typical ground forces and infantry training that most soldiers go into in the Marine Corps. It didn't take long, though, before his superiors figured out he had a troubling mental state. In December of 2002, Nathan arrived home from his training for the holidays. He made no mention to his mother, Mary, about any of the concerns that he had received, reprimands, a couple of punishments about forgetfulness, strange activity, things that were going on in his Marine Corps training. Mary reacted to his responses of how his military training was going very proudly. She was super excited that her son had finally found a place in the world. You know, she loved him. She doted on him. She tried to spoil him. And it was Christmas time. So she wanted to surprise him with a gift. What kind of gift do you think she uh, gave him, Aaron? A guitar. He loved music. That'd be a great gift. Oh, what? It was a nickel-plated Beretta 92F series. Oh, no, Mary. Yeah. She had a hold down at a local gun store for this particular pistol. In order for him to go get it, she had already paid for it, but he needed to go down to the store and fill out the appropriate paperwork so that he could get the gun. Nathan also lied on his ATF form 4473. This is a required FBI background check form anyone has to fill out to get a handgun. He lied about the same particular questions, you know, prior criminal history, mental illness, use of drugs. But only after a short delay, due to his military acceptance in the U.S. Marines, his FBI background check came back cleared. This is a loophole that has now been closed. After which, he was able to register the gun and leave the store with the pistol and a hundred rounds of ammo. Nathan returned to his military training after his leave, tried to bring the gun with him, but his supervisor found it and sent it back home to his mother. His mental state continued to unravel. On March 3rd, 2003, just a few weeks before he was set to deploy to Iraq, he was hospitalized at Camp Lejeune, which, if you remember, the same Marine Corps training facility that Charles Whitman attended in North Carolina, which we covered in a previous episode. Uh, yeah, and if you're wondering, the UT Tower Sniper. Exactly. Huh. Well, a he, weird. his supervisors committed him to a mental ward there based on his behavior. Nathan's official documents from the military reported that he suffered from visions and apparitions, voices in his head that repeatedly referred to him as, quote, the beast. He also suffered from memory loss and schizophrenic delusions. You nailed it with schizophrenia earlier. Okay, so now he goes and talks to a psychiatrist and he gets counseling and he gets therapy and he gets put on medication. And he's all better. And, you know, he learns to live with this mental illness and everything is okay, right? You would think. No, I wouldn't think because that literally never happens. It's always uh, something terrible. Well, welcome to the Because this is how we treat mental just, illness in this just, country. You just turn the knob at the door that opens to the hallway of terrible. Yeah. He discussed some of his delusions and recorded his interviews. He even talked about, like, his theories about Marilyn Manson and 9-11. And What's his, his obsession with Marilyn Manson, though? 
dude, nobody really knows. Like That's his so weird to me. His friends. I mean, Marilyn Manson was blamed for Columbine and stuff like that. I've never heard of somebody blaming him for nine eleven. But if you're somebody who suffers from like paranoid delusions oh, and for schizophrenia, sure. it doesn't I mean, have to was, make any sort of logical yeah. sense to the rest of us. And he was iconic during the time, you know, and sure, he was like yeah. the biggest like shock knee jerk reaction that you could get during the time period. And it's easily blamed on him, just like Columbine. He also talked about his belief that he formed the band Parentera and that the other members had refused to acknowledge his involvement. Oh, no. Not just that. Nathan Gale also had delusions that they were trying to erase his memory in his own mind and make him commit suicide. Who's they? Pantera, the band. Oh. In his mind, in his delusions, he is at the top of the pyramid of the involvement, the creation, the founding of Pantera, and he is the literally the fifth member, and they're trying to remove him from existence. Nathan Gale was given several psychiatric and personality tests to assess his condition. The Marine Corps psychiatrist concluded he was suffering from a chronic psychotic process that matched symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. He was prescribed a mild antipsychotic called Zeprexa. It actually seemed to help Nathan. He was doing better. He wasn't having the visions or the delusions while he was on Zeprexa. The Marine Corps, however, they didn't want to take the risk of sending a person like Nathan Gale into a combat zone and have some kind of relapse. That would be possibly catastrophic. He was also deemed ineligible for veterans' benefits at this point. He was discharged in late 2003. Honorably? Or- he was just blatantly discharged. He was just discharged with no veteran benefits after they've already assessed that yep. he has psychiatric problems. They did give him a recommendation and a prescription for Zeprexa, and they recommended he stayed on it, and that would help him. But no benefits whatsoever. Just released him back into gin pop. Great. Oh, well, we've established that this this man is mentally ill. And we're just going to get him out of our hair and we're not going to make sure he gets the help that he needs. Well, the major part of the military's evaluation is like, is this something that he acquired while being under military service? And that's their major determination. And what they determined was these were symptoms based on his interviews and the tests that he went through that go back to when he was in second grade. So very early on in his life, based on these exams that he took. It's We're not washed. our fault. Yeah, it's not exactly. PTSD. It's not anything yeah. having to do with his service. Our hands so, are clean. Exactly. We're going to yeah. discharge him and he's going to go home and we don't have to worry Not about our problem. Ugh. Well, in December of 2003, Nathan Gale returned home to Marysville, Ohio. He moved into a second floor apartment next door to his mom. The discharge came as a huge shock to his mother, Mary. She had this whole idea that her son was doing well in the Marine Corps, and he was ready to be deployed. She was basing all this information on some letters she was getting back from him. He got a phone at one point, started calling her, and and she had all this misinformation that he was doing fine. Over the next few months, she started to talk to Nathan and pull details out about his particular mental illness. And to her credit, she tried to understand what was going on. She really was open and she started looking stuff up and going to the library and and looking things up on the internet. And she started to get kind of some clues of his mental illness. But in January of 2004, Nathan, unbeknownst to his mother, Mary, 
went over to her home and retrieved his Beretta from storage and pulled it over to his apartment next door. He bought a bunch of ammo and he started going target shooting regularly. Nathan started actually working again. And this time it was at Minute Lube Oil, a oil chain shop that was nearby. Nathan did well there. He started becoming self-sufficient. He kept down a job for the first time in his entire life. You know, he had his own place. He even bought a car. However, for unknown reasons, Nathan Gale stopped taking his recommended dosage of Zaprexa. Not too long after April 4th, 2004, Nathan Gale's first physical altercation with the band Damage Plan occurred, as I outlined earlier. After he got home from the beating that he received from the security guards in the parking lot and from on stage, Nathan Gale wrote in his journal the following, and this is another reading I'm giving to Aaron to read. Look into my eyes and you will see the anguish, the frustration. Take an inhale. The deprived. You will see me fight for my life and my right to survive. You will see Pantera's depression and on the world's disorder of vengeance is mine for the taking. So Aaron doesn't usually read like that. The reason why she's reading like that is because why, Aaron? Well, there's practically no punctuation. Pretty much every other word is capitalized. For no and reason. And there are multiple misspellings. Yeah. For example, worlds is spelled W-O-U-R-L-D-S. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the Bill Butterfield journal it does. entries. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, and you can really see the difference between reading one and reading two. The first reading you read was actually from his journals in the U.S. Marine Corps. When he was being When he was under medicated. the influence of medication and yeah. Zeprexa. This yep. one is not. So it was discovered months later that Nathan Gale owned three books. And I think you're going to find... Oh, just three? Yeah, just three okay. in his apartment. This was his entire book collection. I think you're going to find these three books really interesting. Number one, Zodiac. This, of course, is the non-fictional account of the serial killer known as the Zodiac in California. A little unsettling. Mm-hmm. Number two, Guerrilla Strategies and Historical Anthology from the Long March to Afghanistan. This is kind of a primer of small unit tactics that is a, a reference for people who are trying to understand how they were successful in this particular military event. Yeah, so small groups of people yeah. striking large groups of people. Exactly. Okay. Also concerning. Yeah. The most important book in his collection was the infamous On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society. This book is supposed to convey to the reader the tragedy of reverse engineering an individual, typically a soldier, to be able to kill. Nathan's copy was well used. There were notations on certain pages, lists with words such as desensitization, atrocity, brutality, euphoria, and contemptuousness, all written in his handwriting. This book is supposed to make you understand the sadness and the terrible reverse engineering of human beings to be able to kill someone without having feeling for them. Yeah. And it's supposed to give you a moral, ethical quandary at the end. It's actually part of required readings when you go to the Marine Corps. It appears that he was using it for another reason, to teach him how to lack empathy and become a killing machine, based on some of his journal writings and his notations and his bookmarks that are in the book. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty bizarre. Well, sometime in the final months of 2004, 
Nathan Gale wrote this message by hand in one of his journals. I apologize for what I've done, but I've tried to tell you, but no one would listen. There is a band using my name. The band's name is Pantera. I've enclosed the CD, Wish He Uses My Name, quite frequently. They've talked about me and laughed at me and told other people about my ideas. So I would think about committing suicide. What happened because of this? I was forced into a severe depression that I couldn't get over. I've tried to get a lawyer, but there is no one to take my case. Please hear me. It will be the last time. You can see his schizophrenia. You can see his delusions and his paranoia in his journals. And it's very important to understanding why did this happen. And consider this Nathan Gale's confession of what he was about to do. Let's jump to December 8th, 2004, which brought the band Damage Plan back to Ohio for yet another show. This time at the Al Rosa Villa music venue in Columbus, Ohio, off of Highway 71. It was an older club, but one that the Abbott Brothers had played in the early days of Pantera. They chose it for its sentimental value, its historical nature. It had been there since the 70s. and the owner and the operators of the club had always treated them really well. That was their style. You know, they were rock stars of the people. They were friends of the little guys. And they wanted to show those people love that treated them good. Well, they showed up early. They were out in the parking lot. They were partying with fans. They were signing autographs. They were taking shots with the uh, people who would come up. You know, just oh having a good God, time. That awesome. Well, that was kind of Vinny and Dime's way. There was a lot of stories where Dime would come up and he would write the Cowboys from Hell logo, the CFH, on people's arms, and they would immediately go to the nearest tattoo parlor and get it tattooed on their arm. Dime and Vinny would just give away stuff all the time to fans, you know, and I don't know if you know what December 8th means in history for music and, unfortunately, murder. You know the significance of that date, Aaron? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. It's the anniversary of John Lennon's assassination, which happened 24 years previously. Oh, really? Yeah. And, of course, that happened in New York City, out on the street. Last podcast on the left just put out an episode all about the killer and how he came to shoot John Lennon. You should go check it out if you haven't. It's a terrible coincidence. But it, it, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Around 8 p.m., he decided to head to the venue where Damage Plan was going to be playing later that night. He brought with him his loaded nickel-plated Beretta, another loaded 10-round magazine, and 30 more loose rounds of ammo that he had in his pocket. He turned on his CD player. Of course, what do you think he put in? Newfound Power, the brand new album out for Damage Plan. He arrived at the parking lot near the Alrosa Villa, and he waited and stared at the venue for a long time, over an hour. So three different times while Nathan Gale has parked his car across the street, he's asked by security guards to move the vehicle because he's obstructing traffic. Everybody's showing up for the show. Some of the beginning bands are starting to play. I've actually seen one of the bands that was there that night opening up for Damage Plan Volume Dealer. They've played here in DFW quite a few times. He finally ends up just parking his car in the back of the lot, and he makes his way across the street over into the major parking area to where the Damage Plan tour bus is. He was wearing jeans, a Columbus Blue Jackets jersey, which was one of his favorite things. He's a big Columbus Blue Jackets fan. And he wore that over a gray hooded sweatshirt. He stood about 6 feet 3 inches. He was 266 pounds, and his head was shaved. He's an ogre of a man. Like, mm -hmm. he's huge. He played in, like, a semi-pro football league in his off time as a guard. He was in the Marines. He was so in the Marines. You yeah. assume that he was fit, strong. 
He's a big, he stands out. Yeah. You know, and people notice that. He had these big, thick, eye magnifying Coke bottle glasses on. And he was just kind of pacing back and forth, just smoking cigarette after cigarette. People started to tell security guards, hey, there's this weird guy who's just walking back and forth. Some security guards and even some fans kind of said, hey, are you going to come inside? And he was like, no, I'm not interested in any crappy local bands. I'm waiting for damage plan. Eventually, Nathan, he goes up to the tour bus and he asks Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson, the band's head of security, if the brothers were still on the bus. Mayhem said, no, they're not. And Nathan got the same answer around 10.15 when he asked the band's sound guy, Aaron Barnes, the same question. Soon after this, Nathan headed over to the rear of the club. It was about time for the headliner, Damage Plan, to go on stage. He scaled a high wooden privacy fence near the patio smoking area, and this is like a six-foot privacy fence. And he basically just jumps up, grabs the top, and starts pulling himself over. A security guard spots him, however, and they start yelling at him and running over to the area, at which point he starts hearing people from inside the venue with the patio doors propped open, cheering, and he starts hearing guitar. So he just pulls himself over the edge of the fence and he just runs in. He runs right past several employees and other security guards that aren't able to stop him from getting into the venue. He basically completely disregarded them and he was on a mission. Another thing that Nathan Gale did was he used the chaos of the crowd and the beginning of the headliners show. And, you know, when that happens, like people flock to the front of the stage. Everybody starts to get excited. Well, he was using that chaos to his advantage, bobbing and weaving between different people that were moving in the crowd, making it hard for the security teams who were aware of him and actually really close behind him, unable to catch up to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, once once he's in that crowd, it's going to be really hard to find him. Yeah. And this was basically his strategy for the first dozens of seconds that the band actually started playing. He kept serpentining through the crowd and he actually made his way over to a VIP area on the left of the stage and shoved past an unaware security guard that was paying attention to the band on stage. He gained access to the stage right area via an off-limits staircase that actually led up to the stage in between the PA amplifiers owned by the club. Once up there, Nathan Gale's brisk walk changed into a run behind a wall of speakers. He headed with purpose out onto the stage, past Bob Zilla, the bass player, past Pat Lockman, who was on the mic, and as he passed, he pulled his gun from underneath his sweatshirt, raised it up with both hands, and passed right in front of Vinnie Paul's drum kit. Vinnie Paul reportedly just saw a blue blur with something flashy in somebody's hands. He didn't realize until moments later that it was Nathan Gale with his nickel-plated Beretta. The band was less than a minute into their first song when Nathan Gale crossed the center stage and took his Beretta and headed for Dimebag Daryl. Dime was facing away from Nathan. He never saw him approaching. He was in the full throes of headbanging and playing the first riffs and entertaining the crowd with his curly hair flying all over the place, his big pink-dyed goatee that he was known for flashing as he would come up and down. When he reached arm's length, Nathan Gale grabbed a handful of Dimebag Daryl's hair, pulled him close, and Mayhem Thompson was already in motion to stop this scene. He'd been alerted by other security guards and the employees what was going on. He was in a full dead sprint across the stage to stop what was happening. Mayhem actually made it to Nathan Gale and tried to yank him off of Dimebag. This gave Dimebag a moment to get his hand up 
and try and get whatever was being pressed against his head away from him. It was the gun, the Beretta. So he got his hand between the Beretta and his head, palm facing out. It wasn't enough time and it wasn't enough effort on everybody's part, though, because Nathan pulled the trigger and the gun blasted. The bullet entered Dimebag's hand, hit a few bones inside of his hand, and exited through his thumb and entered the side of his head. Mayhem took Nathan down to the ground as Dimebag fell to the stage floor. Mayhem knocked off Nathan's glasses in the struggle as the gunman fired another shot into the side of Dimebag's face. Nathan Gale was relentless. He kept fighting off Mayhem Thompson, and Mayhem's another giant, huge security man, and he's trained in bouncing and self-defense and security, and he's doing everything he can to control this guy, but somehow his rage and his anger is still able to fight Mayhem off and get another shot off and shoot Dime in the side of the face. Once on the ground, the giant Nathan Gale again fought his way away from Mayhem and crawled over to the bleeding Dimebag Daryl placed the gun on the back of Dimebag's head and pulled the trigger for a third time. Oh my god. Dime- I had no idea he was able to get so many shots off. To, I mean, just to Dimebag. Yeah. Wow. And again, you know, this is why you need to read Chris Arnold's book, A Vulgar Display of Power, because he interviews all the security people and employees and witnesses and family, everybody who was involved, to get the most accurate depiction of the events that night. Well, Dimebag laid dead upon one of his signature guitars. It was still plugged in, the volume was still up, and the wails and screeches of the guitar feedback filled the venue. Mayhem tried to pull himself between Nathan and Dimebag while simultaneously continuing to disarm him, and it didn't work. He was struggling, you know, to protect Dimebag and to try and disarm this guy. At this point, three more men burst onto the stage to try and help in the situation. It was band manager Christopher Paluska, drum tech John Cat Brooks, and Al Rosa security guard Ronald Jenkins. Nathan Gale, even with his blurred vision, could see well enough to fire his fourth shot into the left side of Christopher Paluska's chest as he approached. Ronald Jenkins made the decision to leap off the stage to avoid getting shot by Nathan Gale as he saw Paluska get hit. Nathan Gale was able to rise and push the still-fighting mayhem towards the drum riser where Vinnie Paul's drum kit was. He was likely searching for Dime's brother to be his next target. Vinnie was nowhere to be seen. And this is because as soon as the firing started, guitar technician John Graham fought his way onto the stage and grabbed Vinnie Paul and pulled him back behind some of the stacks of amplifiers that were Dimebag's amplifiers. He was just feet away from the drum kit with Vinnie Paul. He might have saved Vinnie Paul's life. Oh, he definitely did. He definitely did. He was holding Vinnie Paul back and Vinnie Paul was trying to fight him to get out to help Dimebag. And John Graham was keeping him quiet and keeping him still, he actually saw Nathan Gale scanning the drum riser and looking for Vinny. Well, during the scuffle between the two men, as Nathan Gale and Mayhem are still pushing and shoving each other, Brooks, the drum tech, headed for Dimebag's unmoving body. He quickly realized that his friend was gone, and he remained on stage by his own words, quote, fueled by anger, questions, and my own adrenaline. I stayed up there. I just, I wanted it to stop. I wanted to help. Well, Graham, who was with Vinny, saw his chance to get Vinny out of the venue when Mayhem Thompson engaged Nathan Gale one more time. They sprinted across the back of the stage and headed out one of the side exits. Mayhem attempted to put Nathan in a full Nelson chokehold, 
It's it looked like it was working at first, but Nathan Gale somehow awkwardly reached behind him with the gun and fired the fifth shot. It made impact with Mayhem's right chest and exited out his lower left back. Immediately, Jeff Mayhem Thompson, a longtime friend of the band, the quote gentle giant, he began fleeing for assistance. Nathan Gale turned, he took aim at Mayhem, and he fired as he fled. The sixth shot would hit Mayhem in the carotid artery. He fell to the stage floor, dead almost instantly. And how brave it was for him to continue attacking Nathan Gale, knowing that he had just shot Dimebag Daryl dead on the stage. Yeah. You know, knowing he had a gun and that he was totally willing to use it. And Chris Paluska in the chest. Yeah. And probably, you know, part of the reason why Vinnie Paul and some of the others were able to get away was because he kind of sacrificed himself to make that uh, distraction for Nathan DeGale, you know, keep him occupied for at least a few seconds. Definitely. He was a hero. Yeah. Um, And we're about to get into another person who's another hero in the situation. And that's John Cat Brooks. He used his rage and his anguish that had been building up in him to challenge the shooter at this point once he saw Mayhem go down. He knew it was just him and Nathan Gale on the stage. He had to keep protecting Pat Lockman and Bob Zilla, who were still actually playing music at this point. It took a few minutes because of the loudness, because of the chaos that was going on on the stage, for everyone to figure out what was oh, actually wow. going on. This is minutes into the attack for us describing it, but we're talking about something that's probably been happening a few seconds. Yeah, a few dozen seconds. Yeah. yeah. Well, just as the sixth shot was fired, Brooks reached Nathan Gale and began wrestling with him for the gun. As the two fought for the gun, singer Pat Lockman told everyone on the microphone, this is not a part of the show. Someone call 911. For fuck's sake, somebody call 911. He and bassist Robert Bobzilla Kakaha fled out the rear exit door to provide aid to tour manager Chris Paluska, who was bleeding outside. At this point, Columbus police were inundated with calls from the venue, and dispatch routed the calls to the closest officers, one of which would be James Niggemeyer. The two men, Brooks and Gale, they're battling for the gun for some time. Brooks kept telling Nathan, stop shooting, you're killing all of my friends. Eventually, Nathan Gale grabbed a handful of Brooks's hair and put the gun to his temple and told him to be quiet and stop fighting or he was about to blow his brains out. They ended up behind Dimebag's stack of amplifiers, which was just where uh, Graham and Vinnie Paul were hiding for safety. Once Nathan Gale got control of Brooks in the headlock, he headed back out into the spotlights. Brooks never stopped resisting this whole time. He put his hands over the end of Nathan's pistol he struggled. Nathan reacted and he pulled the trigger. The bullet hit more bones in the roadie's hand, just like Dimebag, and it exited and hit him in his leg. Nathan Gale, stunned and without vision, moved himself and his hostage to stage left. From in the audience, 23-year-old Nate Bray couldn't stand still and decided to act. He climbed the security barrier fence, he leapt up on the stage, and he crawled on his hands and knees to Dimebag's lifeless body. Once there, he rolled Dimebag over. He heard him actually moan. So he was still alive, and he decided to begin CPR. Unfortunately, though, during the CPR, during every compression, blood flowed from Dimebag's wounds on his head and from his mouth. His efforts weren't enough to save Dimebag Daryl Abbott, and he soon died right there on the stage at the age of 38 years old. His death comes only a handful of minutes from the time that John Lennon was shot. Nate Bray's attention turned to damage plans head of security Mayhem Thompson. 
He didn't realize at the time, but Mayhem Thompson was dead, but he was trying to reach him to give him assistance. At that moment, Nathan Gale was emerging through the spotlight of center stage with his hostage, and Nate Bray stood up, he put his hands to his side, and he began moving towards the shooter in a non-threatening way. Nathan Gale raised his arm, aimed, and fired a single round into Bray's chest. This eighth bullet continued through Nathan Bray and back into the body of Jeff Thompson. At this point, Nathan Gale began firing into the audience, threatening people to stay away from the stage and stay back. Wait, sorry, so this guy is just a random concert goer? Yeah. He had some background in CPR and medical training. Nathan Bray actually isn't dead at this point. He's able to flee off the side stage and find a door that was open to like like a maintenance room, quasi dressing room for other bands and barricade himself in there. And unfortunately, he died inside that room. After firing into the crowd and trying to keep everybody away from the stage, it looked like Nathan Gale had run out of ammunition. He reached for a magazine to reload his pistol. A security employee for the venue, Aaron Hawk, tried to take advantage of the situation and rush Nathan and the hostage. Nathan saw him coming, however, and he was quickly able to reload his gun with the extra magazine, pull back the slide, and just as Aaron was about to reach him, he fired twice, hitting him in the chest and the hand. About this time, James Nigemeyer had pulled up in the parking lot. He was seeing people fleeing the venue and everybody was trying to get him to go inside and get to the attacker. So he pulled out his shotgun that he kept in his patrol vehicle, and he started making his way inside, securing hallways and rooms as he went. He reached the actual side stage area, stage right, and he quickly and within a few seconds recognized his opportunity. Nathan Gale had his hostage, and he was focused on the crowd and the people that were trying to jump over the barricade to get up on the stage. He moved to the back rear of the stage and emerged from center stage where the spotlights were with his shotgun raised behind Nathan Gale. In order to protect the hostage, John Cat Brooks, he made a final decision. Shoot now and try and protect the victim. He moved the shotgun to an aimed position to spread the pellets of the shotgun in such a manner to limit the victim's injuries and do maximum damage to the shooter. In the movement of one finger, Officer Nigemeyer hit Nathan Gale in the upper body with a shotgun blast that the audience members said sounded like an erupting cannon. It was one shot, the beast was no more. Nathan Gale was 25 years old and died at the Alrosa Villa. The whole terrible event lasted around five minutes. Officers who had gained entrance from the main general admission area were just about to reach the stage when he was shot and they quickly moved up secured the scene luckily they were able to uh, give medical assistance to Paluska but Dimebag Daryl Abbott 38 his longtime friend head of security Jeff Mahan Thompson who was 40 years old he died on stage as well audience member married father Nathan Bray he passed away inside that locked room Aaron Hawk 29 a security guard who had actually picked up that shift that night from another employee, died on stage, stage right, over by Mayhem Thompson. Another seven people in the crowd were injured by stray bullets and wild shots that were fired from the stage, as well as ricochets. So Vinny, at this point, is outside the venue. He's out back. He's trying to help one of his friends, but he also wants to get into his brother. He doesn't realize what's happened to Dime yet. I mean, he's assuming the worst, 
because he saw him get shot at least once in the head. But he's still hoping that Dime is alive somehow. Rita Haney, at one point she checked her phone and, and Vinny had been trying to call her over and over and over. And when she finally received the last call, Vinny let her know that Dimebag was dead. Her lifelong love, her best friend, the kid she grew up with and painted Kiss makeup on was gone. Vinny said it was the hardest thing he'd ever had to do to tell Rita Haney what had happened in that moment. Vinny has since suffered from depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anxiety from the event. And of it, he said, it was like a real bad movie. You know, one of those awful ones. The ones that you don't want to keep watching. And none of it seemed real. I lost everything that night. I just feel like somebody took a hacksaw and cut me right down the middle, took my right arm, my right leg, and my whole heart. Jerry Abbott, Dime's father, said of the tragedy, I would love it if he would walk through that door. I feel like he's still going to sometimes. But then I just break down and know that he's never going to walk through that door and I'm never going to be able to tell my boy that I love him again. Oh, God, how sad. Officer James Nigemeyer had to leave the police force three years later. And he says he's never recovered from the emotional pain and the horror of the incident. He actually did the foreword in Chris Armold's book. Really? Um, and he oh, co-wrote wow. the book with Chris Armold. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Of the incident, he said, quote, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety. I found out that you don't have any control over your brain. It's going to do what it's going to do. Cops are regular human beings, and people forget that sometimes. Things affect us the same way that they affect everyday citizens. And I relived it and had to deal with it over and over ever since December 8th, 2004. Wow, yeah. And that's a really good point. And that's yep. something that we have talked about a few times in the show. What what happens with authorities having to do the things that they have to do? Yep. Um, but yeah, what a hero, because who knows how many more people that piece of crap could have killed. Yeah. I mean, he acted so quickly. Yeah. You know, and from the time he arrived on the scene, it was a handful of seconds before Nathan Gale was dead. Yeah, I'm actually really surprised because for some reason I figured, I don't know, I guess just getting to the stage would have been more difficult or would have more time consuming but just the fact that he climbed a fence and literally just ran inside ran to the stage and just started shooting is i don't know for some reason i didn't picture it to just to happen that quickly i mean there's just what what could have people done the venue ended up getting a lot of blame for their lack of security especially the way that it was set up with those patio doors just propped open and uh, no real security manning that entrance, but I don't know. But even so, I mean, if there had been somebody at that door, wouldn't he have just shot them too? Yeah, he pushed his way stage, past I mean, several security people and employees as he went through that hallway. And people were on the radio saying, there's this giant dude who's yeah. gotten into the venue. Well, Dimebag Daryl Abbott was laid to rest in Moore Memorial Gardens Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. It was a star-studded metal music affair akin to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nights. He was buried in a Kiss coffin. He had a Van Halen guitar placed in his coffin by Eddie Van Halen himself, and it's actually the same Frankenstein guitar that's featured on their first album. I have a picture of his headstone that I showed you earlier, and you can see it's elaborate, it's ornate, uh, it has a really nice image of him and his guitar, and it's still a point to this day where motorcycle riders, fans, all these different people, just people who loved Pantera or Damage Plan or the family themselves, they'll they'll do these like massive pilgrimages from across the country. There's a, a big motorcycle ride called 
ride for dime that takes place on his death anniversary they go across the country and they they basically like pay homage to dime yeah it's interesting and we'll post a picture of his headstone that you showed me but it's really interesting there's i mean you can tell that it's a pilgrimage site there's yeah cans of beer and crown royal and whiskey and, and candles guitar flowers, picks just yeah. everywhere from all of his fans and all the people that he touched mm-hmm. you know going there and trying to pay their respects yeah and he's buried next to his mom too on the family plot and uh there's two more spaces left unfortunately that's one of the where vinnie paul is going to be buried yeah right next to him and then the final spot will be left for their dad jerry Whenever he passes away. Yeah, which is just so horrible to know that the father outlived both of his sons. Mm -hmm. And that's just so absolutely devastating, especially knowing how they grew up and how close he was with his with his kids. Yeah, exactly. Well, one person who wasn't at the funeral, though. Well, let me say this. He wasn't allowed to attend the funeral was Phil Anselmo. He actually called Rita and asked her if he could come and rita haney said over the phone that she would shoot him on sight if he dared show his face at dime's funeral i have no idea if phil plans to attend Vinny's services on sunday but he since all this has happened has tried to make amends with Vinny several times and has said his door's open and if Vinny just needs to beat him up for a few hours he's fine with that as long as they can sit down and talk afterwards because he still considers him a brother and Vinny was always no to that. They never made amends. Hmm. Vinny didn't seem like he had any interest. And, yeah. you know. I wonder if it was also just too painful. Like, yeah. another Pantera member, you know, going over those memories with his brother with another bandmate might have have something to do with that as well. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like, that's part of the reason why Vinny bought the house in Vegas where he ended up dying in his sleep is so that he could get away from Dallas and Fort Worth from time to time to go refocus and decompress because unfortunately one of the terrible things about living here in the home of dime and Vinnie Paul is every time a fan would see him, they'd come up and most of the time they wanted to talk about dime and tell him how sorry they were that he passed away. And it was just like pulling the bandaid off again, you know? Yeah, because everybody knows him. And if, if you guys don't know what Vinnie Paul looks like, he... He's very recognizable. You know, exactly. <laughs> in fact, the the first time that we ever saw him in public was at a Judas Priest show, what, yeah. three years ago or so. And um, he was in this center section in general admission. There was like this little center... In the sound booth. In the sound booth, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was just hanging out there. And yeah, there were fans going by and talking to him. And I remember us even being like, oh, I wonder if we should go talk to him. But then we were like, uh... We felt weird about it because we yeah. were like, oh, he's out in public. He's, I don't want to bother I, I wish that we had, though, obviously now. But anyways, big guy, you know, kind of heavy yep. set guy, long hair, black goatee, beard situation, usually wears this big cowboy hat, mm-hmm. really like kind of flamboyantly dressed. He looks like a rock star. Yeah. And, and so everybody knows who Vinny Paul is. I yeah. mean, everyone. And obviously, people. I'm, I'm sure it's coming from a, a place in their hearts where they're just wanting to pay their respects to Dimebag, but every time, I mean, that must get so difficult to deal with, having to go over that with perfect strangers like every day. Did I mention that Dime was buried in a Kiss-themed casket? You did, yeah. Okay, well, Vinnie Paul, uh, his burial is going to be done in the same casket, and it's going to be provided by the band Kiss. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But really sweet, but... So yeah, really sad. and there's there's so much more that I could talk about. I mean, I already have some bonus episodes planned for other things that are involved in this story that I just don't have time to get into. But 
Until then, go read A Vulgar Display of Power, Courage, and Carnage at the Alrosa Villa by Chris Armold and James Niggemeyer. Yeah, and again, that book, it had a scholarship set up for Nathan Bray's child. Oh, the concert goer who, wow, that's incredible. So everybody go out and buy that book. Yeah, and you know... I mean, I'm I'm assuming the proceeds still continue to go to the family i hope so and i they probably do but even if you have a kindle account and you have kindle unlimited through your amazon prime thing you can read it for free and just by like borrowing the book they get money from this so and also you need to go check out the remastered version of vh1's behind the music it's they made a few flubs in the first version phil anselmo came back and he was upset by the way that they painted him in the picture but there are some really great interviews by best friends of the band zach wilde lane staley from allison chains anybody and everybody who knew dime and vinnie paul they talk about how important they were for music and for just the music community and north texas as a whole go check that out and if you're a dallas stars fan you need to go read the article from the dallas stars about vinnie paul it's great It explains all the Dallas Stars connections that are going on there. (laughs) And finally, I would say go check out our friend Lainey at True Crime Fan Club. She did an awesome episode about this case, and she really focuses on all the victims, not just Dime. And it's it's amazing. It's really good. This book and her episode really kind of go through their life stories and how they all ended up there that particular night. Um, Yeah, which sounds like it's good in conjunction with your episode, because like you said, the VH1 piece that really covers pantera and dimebag but it doesn't really go over the other victims or the other heroes in this case and then the book and laney really talk about the victims and really focus on that and then yours is kind of a good in between because you really wanted to talk about pantera this band that had such an effect on you and who you've loved for such a very long time but you also wanted to really tell the story and uh, talk about the victims as well. So you have a lot of sources out there to really, I think, get the most information at this as possible. But I think you did a really good job. Oh, thanks. I know it was hard for you because yeah. I know that Pantera was such a big ban- band for you. And this was an important case. I, it never sat well with me when everybody was just blaming Phil Anselmo for his, his comments in the media. And that this guy was just some lunatic ex-Marine who lost it and was blaming the Abbott brothers for breaking up Pantera. I was like, that's not enough. I need to know more about what actually happened. Is there a reason why he went after the Abbott brothers specifically? Or was it just, again, coincidence? If it was Phil Anselmo's band there that day, he would have gone after Phil Anselmo. Do we, I mean, do we know why it was the Abbott brothers and not other? We don't really know why it was the Abbott brothers and not Phil, but Phil, his band, Superjoint Ritual, played the same club three months earlier. And really, yeah, Nathan Gale was not there. That's really interesting. I wonder, because he doesn't, at least in the writings that you provided, he doesn't specifically name the Abbott brothers. He does name the Abbott brothers in a lot of his okay. interviews so with the was, military medical professionals. Really? So it yeah. was something specifically about Vinnie Paul and Dime that yep. bothered him. He thought that they were at the heart of this mental manipulation that he was having delusions about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting because, you know, we don't we haven't talked too much about mental health in our podcast because a lot of the people that we've we've talked about aren't necessarily mentally ill you know they might have personality disorders or they might be just big pieces of garbage that does not mean that they were mentally ill in this case it's very clear very clear that nathan gill was incredibly mentally ill and it's really unfortunate it 
because it sounds like he had people in his life who cared about him. His mom obviously cared about him. He had friends growing up who knew yeah. there were things going on with him. Coworkers. He had been yeah. in the military. The Marines were aware that he was mentally ill and he never got the help that he needed. And we can see what happened not only in his life, but the fact that he then went on a violent rampage. Yeah. So it's just, it's horribly, unfor- I mean, just it's just such a waste. Yeah. Such a waste of such an amazing talent. Not only Dimebag, but everybody. Yeah. Now Vinny too. You know, Vinny's gone now too. And my heart goes out to the Abbott family and Rita, who are all the the surviving members that are going to have to lay Vinny to rest this Sunday. And also, I wanted to say a little bit about Vinny's celebration of life, which is occurring. It's open to the public and you can find information about it online. I'll post some stuff tomorrow about it. It's at the Bomb Factory in Dallas, and it's open to the public. So you just have to stand in line and get a wristband, and you can go be part of it. Well, grab yourself a pull, put a little black tooth grin on your on your face, and uh, pour one out for the Abbott brothers. They will be missed, and uh, they'll always be with me. How about you? Uh, you raise our spirits, and we'll raise a glass to uh, the brothers and some good news. All right, let's do it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, this story comes to us from the Dallas Morning News. And this is uh, a couple months old, but I wanted to talk about it because I thought it was a really exciting venture in medical technology and also something that happened right here in North Texas. And this is a story about Dr. Giuliano Testa. He was recently included on this year's Time 100 list. That's the list that they put out that lists the most influential people in the world. And he is Baylor's chief of abdominal transplantation. And he led a team that ended up leading to a groundbreaking uterine transplant clinical trial. And what that means was this is the first time that a transplant of a uterus was performed and led to the successful birth of a baby. And this clinical trial was for women who either their uteri didn't work or they were not born with a uterus. And this woman who was the first successful mother to a child born after this transplant surgery, she was actually born without a uterus. Wow. Within a few months of getting into this trial, she was pregnant and ended up giving birth to a healthy baby at the end of last year. She said of Dr. Testa that he was, quote, a pillar of strength and assurance, and that confidence was contagious. And she said she was honored to be, quote, a small part of his miracle. And this past February, another child was born, and this was another child that was a success of a uterine transplant under these same procedures and methods. And basically, Dr. Testa said that this shows that the procedures that they go through for this uterine transplant 
wasn't just a, quote, clinical stunt, meaning it proves that this is something that they could successfully keep doing in the future and keep even getting better at it, and that this is something that's going to help women all across the world in the future. They're going to continue this clinical study. They're actually enrolling 10 more patients right now. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, the the viability for this medical treatment is really exciting for yeah, it, people like that. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't exactly say what the treatment was. I, I don't know if it's just a transplant, which if you know anything about transplants, it's always going to be a really difficult road. If you've read any sort of articles about any kind of transplants that people have done, including, you know, hand transplants, heart transplants, any kind of transplants, it's a long, long process. Yeah, and people, a big gamble. Exactly, because the people who go through them, it's a lot of physical, emotional labor that you have to go through in order to try to get this successfully done. And they're kind of heroes because it means that what people are kind of experimenting on your body and they're learning so much to then go on and move forward to help the next person. And so it's a really incredible story, I think. And it's really cool that this is happening in North Texas and that they're going to continue this trial and continuing uh, fine-tuning this these procedures in order to help women in the future give birth. That's awesome. That's yeah. a very good story. So congratulations, Dr. Testa, and uh, good luck. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was a really good piece of good news that you brought to us. And at this point of the show, like we always do, we like to give some credit back to our favorite listeners and those of you who've given us five-star reviews on Facebook and iTunes. Of course, you can always find us on Facebook if you search All Crime No Cattle or iTunes by searching the same thing. And if you give us a five-star review, we will read it on the air and pay it back to you for the time being until we move on to our Patreon supporters. Yeah. And uh, remember, you can also find us on other various social media. You can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. And you can even drop us a line at allcrimenocattle at gmail.com. We have gotten some really amazing recommendations for future episodes from people, and I'm really excited about them. And again, I'm I'm going through our list of emails. We've had a bunch of them recently, and so I'm trying to respond back to everyone. Know that if I haven't responded to you yet, if you're on the list, I've read it. And I'm going to get back to you because I'm trying to actually read through a lot of people have sent us um, like news articles on yeah. on cases. And so I'm trying to read them and actually respond to you. We're so. getting too big. I guess so. Yeah, we've got a lot of people out there and uh, we appreciate your opinions and uh, your recommendations. So keep them coming. But hold your horses. We'll get to you when we can. <laughs> well, our first one from Facebook is a drive by five starring from Adina Annabelle Kalb. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but she gave us five stars. And then she got the heck out of there. She was busy. <laughs> Lauren Skittle Miller said, love, love, love. Thanks for plugging other podcasts, too. I think it's great that you support each other's work. And I now have more material to binge. Y'all have great chemistry. And I appreciate that you don't go on long tangents and stay on point with the story you are telling. Thank you so much, Lauren. And I'm glad that you like our podcast recommendations because there are buddies. The true crime community is just absolutely amazing, including all of the podcast hosts. We love them. And everybody's super supportive. So we like to give back. Our last one that we're going to do on Facebook today is Robin McBaron. And they said, just found this podcast and I am fast becoming hooked on it. Five stars. 
Very good. Excellent. Moving on to iTunes five-star reviews. We've got License Nurse 85. They say, love from Arizona. Love this podcast. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, but this is turning into one of my favorites. Thanks for everything you do to keep me entertained while I drive around all day for my work. Yeah, well, we're glad that uh, we can be with you on your, your drives and your commutes. You're welcome. Aaron use, and I also. Use your blinker. Yeah, use your blinker. Uh, watch out for those red lights. Aaron and I also listen to a lot of podcasts when we drive around and go on road trips and stuff. So we're right there with you. NC Web Girl says, wonderful, five stars. You guys are great together. I love how much research you put into your episodes. Look forward to each and every one. Well, thank you. Appreciate that, NC Web Girl. We appreciate you. And all of you listeners. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about some of our uh, podcast recommendations just a second ago. We've got a real big one coming well, up. Well, we got a good one for you guys. So um, we've talked about the podcast criminology on this podcast before, especially in regards to the Golden State Killer, the recent arrest. And um, I really recommend criminology. If you have not listened to criminology, then I don't know what you're doing with your life. Because uh, the first season is all about the Zodiac Killer. They really talk about basically everything you could possibly want to know about the Zodiac is something that they bring up and really go over in fine detail on that first season. And it's really important, I think, because we're getting to the point where we we might have some – there's developments in the case. Yeah. And that's super exciting. So you want to know about Zodiac before possibly we we find out who Zodiac is. Yeah. That's incredible. It came up today in our episode. I know. And it's come up in the Phantom Killer of Texarkana. Exactly. So, so it's a really important case. Definitely look into that. Their second season is all about East Area Rapist slash the Vesalia Ransacker slash the Golden State Killer. They actually started their second season before the news broke about the arrest of D'Angelo. So you get sort of the beginning of that where they're just talking about it as if we don't know who this person is. And then, bam, halfway through the season, we have this arrest. And it's really incredible. They have interviews with victims, victims' families. They have interviews with Paul Holes, again, both before and after the arrest of D'Angelo. So it's it's a really – I mean, I can't I can't recommend it enough. And Mike Morford, who is one of the hosts of Criminology – has a new podcast coming out. He actually has a couple new podcasts coming yeah. out, which is great for everybody who loves true crime. But this one that he is doing, it's going to be dropping July 7th, and it's called The Murder in My Family Podcast. And this is a podcast that's going to be all about victims and victims' families talking about what the crimes that happened and then affected them. It's going to be really, I think, based in advocacy and having the victims and the victims' families talk about what happened to them instead of you know our show where it's just people who've never met these people yeah. talking about it you're actually going to get content from the people who are most closely to these cases and i think it's going to be awesome uh again morph is a great guy i think he's a really exceptional dude he's really nice and he's a pillar of support in the true crime community yeah absolutely. he helps out so many shows and little guys and independent podcasts yep. all the time so really nice guy it's gonna be a good show go ahead and subscribe to it before it even comes out i know i have and it's gonna be great so this is a murder in my family podcast so check it out yeah enjoy that trailer and as always crime is bigger in texas y'all adios bye Murder. 
the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. A short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that. A word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal, because they've lost a loved one to murder. And I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford, and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.